0: Hello everybody, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to New Discourse's Bullets, where I give a short bullet point type summary, sort of, of some topic relevant to woke Marxism. And today we're going to talk about the totalitarianism of the progressive impulse, which is kind of a fancy phrase. So let's start with a pop quiz. I'm going to do a little bit of reading to you uh, in this episode. So let's do the pop quiz. Which famous communist said this now this is about two paragraphs so bear with me the readiness to sacrifice one's personal work and if necessary even one's life for others shows its most highly developed form in the Communist the greatness of the co- sorry the greatness of the communist is not based on his intellectual powers but rather on his willingness to devote all his faculties to the service of the community here the instinct for self-preservation has reached its noblest form. For the communist willingly subordinates his own ego to the common weal, and when when necessity calls he will even sacrifice his own life for the community. The constructive powers of the communist and and that peculiar ability he has for for the building up of a culture are not grounded in his intellectual gifts alone. If that were so, they might only be destructive and could never have the, the ability to organize. For the latter essentially depends on the readiness of the individual to renounce his own personal opinions and interests, and to lay both at the service of of the human group. By serving the common weal, he receives his reward in return. For example, he does not work directly for himself, but makes his productive work a part of the activity of the group to which he belongs, not only for his own benefit, but for the general. The spirit underlying this attitude is expressed by the word work, which to him does not at all mean, uh, does not at all signify a means of earning one's daily livelihood, but rather a productive activity which cannot clash with the interests of the community. Whenever human activity is directed exclusively to the service of the instinct for self-preservation, it is called theft or usury or robbery or burglary, etc. So which famous communist was that. Okay, it's a little bit unfair. Turns out it's a famous socialist, and that I think you could hear very clearly from what we read, but it's not who you probably expect. This is Adolf Hitler from the 11th chapter of Mein Kampf, which is also the weird occultist, racist chapter that everybody kind of is uh, super aware of. So this is the chapter where Hitler lays out his case for the superiority of certain races, and everywhere that the, the, the term communist appeared, I actually just clipped out the phrase, the Aryan race. So the readiness to sacrifice one's, personal, uh, sacrifice one's personal work, and if necessary, even one's life for others, shows its most highly developed form in the Aryan race. The greatness of the Aryan is not just based on blah, 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 blah. So that turns out to only have had to happen um, four times, where I swapped out Aryan for communism, or communist, I should say. So that famous socialist was not technically a communist. He was Hitler. So I guess he was a fascist. So what's going on here? Because that sounds so much alike. Aren't communists and Nazis supposed to be mortal enemies? That's what we always hear. Aren't they direct opposites? wasn't literally the branding of the communists as anti-fascists, and they pose themselves as the sole people who are opposed to fascism. But isn't it weird how they sound the same? Except where the issue is located in communism or the proletariat, as a matter of fact, versus in race. Because that, what I just read, even though it's Hitler reads almost like it's straight out of Lenin or Stalin or some other early 20th century communist. So what gives? Well, the thing is, is that there are a number of common threads between communism and Nazism. And they actually are different things in a very important way, but they're sort of different in the way that two different breeds of dogs or two different breeds of cats are different from one another. I mean, nobody would confuse a golden retriever for a chihuahua, but that doesn't mean that they're not both dogs. And what puts them together here, what's most important here that puts them together is that their fundamental disposition is progressive. And progressivism is the underlying characteristic that unifies them. It's not even just the socialism, it's the progressivism, okay? Because they sound so much alike. They're supposed to be mortal opposites, direct direct or mortal enemies and direct opposites. But the thing is, is you've heard before that the the small differences make for a bigger fight. And I forget how that's exactly phrased. The the violence of small differences or the animosity of small differences. You get, you know, two different Christians together for a debate, and they have um pretty different theologies. Let's say a Catholic and a Protestant, and the debate can go pretty smoothly. But you get two Baptists together who have different views of baptism, and it gets out of control. You get two academics together from different disciplines, and they might disagree quite a bit, but it's a civil. You get two academics together who have different interpretations of roughly the same phenomenon, and it's mayhem. That distinction of small differences kind of explains why these people are such fierce enemies and fierce opposites, because they are actually commanding the mantle of the same thing in two different ways. And both not only have to fear losing the ability to implement their thing, but they fear being able to implement their thing uh, will be um, discredited by the similarity of the opposite group. And so a very strong case can be made. And I think that reading from Hitler directly does it really. But if If we are forced to abuse familiar terms like left and right for these things, I think a very strong case can be made that the communists would be left progressives and the Nazis are right progressives, or left-wing and right-wing, left-wing progressives, communists, right-wing progressives, Nazis. Now, I'm misusing the terms right and left there, but there's a way that they fit, and that's actually the way that they tend to mean when they use them at each other, um, It really confuses the matter because left and right here stick out like they're the relevant part, and they're not the relevant part. Nazis aren't conservatives. They're progressives. But they are, in some sense, rightward-leaning progressives in a weird way of the meaning of the word right. The relevant part isn't left progressive or right progressive. It's progressive. That's what puts them together. Okay, so I don't want to get lost in the weeds of are they left-wing or right-wing. That's a distraction. They're progressives. They're both progressives. And so what are progressives? Well, first of all, let me make the weird case that progressives are actually reactionaries. Progressives are reactionaries to the Enlightenment order. And the Enlightenment order rejects a lot of superstition and myth, and they operate on a particular kind of that. And so they In fact, what they operate on is gnosis, the belief that they have been given a glimpse of the mind of God, or the purpose of history, or the direction of history, or what the end of history is supposed to look like. And Enlightenment rationalism says, BS, no you haven't. And so they are cousins or brothers within the counter-Enlightenment tradition. So in that sense, in that they're kind of both Gnostics who are fighting against the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment doesn't leave room for Gnosticism, which is not just knowledge or believing you have knowledge, it's believing you have a glimpse of the mind of God or that you've had it revealed to you. It's a very special kind of revealed knowledge that's above knowledge. It's absolute knowledge. It's believing you know the absolute truth about something. And in this case, it turns out to be history and how it moves. So progressives are people who believe that history is progressing along some purposed course that they think that they can study. So they look back at history as it unfolds and see an arc of progress bending in a particular direction and for particular reasons, and they claim to study something like a science of history. And progressives are special kind of people who can become conscious of that process of history, that progress, and how it works, and thus can also claim the unique Ability to and the right to uh, the ability to understand it and the right to direct it. So all progressivism is always therefore going to end in totalitarianism. Let's get that straight. Progressivism believes it knows where how history moves and how it's supposed to move, but only the progressives know that and everybody else has it wrong. So they're uniquely conscious of the direction of history. So they deserve to rule history. So Nazism and communism, both being progressive, are going to Always be totalitarian, because all progressivism ends in totalitarianism for a reason that precedes either philosophy, or it's not really a philosophy because it doesn't love wisdom. It loves gnosis. It's a anthroposophy, which is a or yeah, I guess that's really a, it's a, a sophy means um, wisdom and 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 uh, anthropo means man, so it's like a wisdom of man or whatever. So Nazism is totalitarian, communism is totalitarian, both are totalitarianism in different forms, and that's because they're both progressive, and that's because all progressivism is Gnostic, and Gnosticism ends in totalitarianism. I guess if you are an individual spiritualist that believes in the Gnostic story, and you're a seeker in that regard, and you aren't trying to apply it to politics and society, then maybe not. But the second you start to apply it to society, that's where it's going. So these types, the progressives believe they have had a special glimpse into the mind of God, to the divine intellect about the intended course of history and the processes that move it along. And therefore, on some level, even if they, like the communists, reject the idea of God entirely, they believe that they understand reality on a different level higher than everybody else they're conscious of it and that they therefore have the mandate of heaven if you will behind them to manifest it and thus it's always going to be totalitarian now if you don't think that hitler was a progressive let's hear some more from hitler on this idea in fact what i'm going to do is read him right in his own words continuing from where we left off in the passage above and read about another page This mental attitude, which forces self-interest to recede into the background in favor of the commonweal, is the first prerequisite for any kind of really human civilization. Now I want to remind you how often Karl Marx talks about humanism being the center of his project and making civilization, society, the world, and man more fundamentally human. It is out of this spirit alone that great human achievements have sprung for which the original doers have scarcely ever received any recompense but which turns out to be the source of abundant b- benefit for the descendants. It is uh, it is this spirit alone which can explain why it so often happens that people can endure a harsh but honest existence which offers them no returns for their toil except a poor and modest livelihood. Doesn't this sound like what communists say? But such a livelihood helps to consolidate the foundations on which the community exists. It definitely sounds like communism. Every worker and every peasant, every inventor, state official, etc., who works without ever achieving fortune or prosperity for himself is a representative of this sublime idea, even though he may never become conscious of the profound meaning of his own activity. Everything that may be said of this kind of, of that kind of work, which is the fundamental condition of providing food and the basic means of human progress— is true even in a higher sense of work that is done for the protection of man and his civilization. The renunciation of one's own life for the sake of the community is the crowning significance of the idea of all sacrifice. It is in, it is, sorry, in this way only is it possible to protect what has been built up by man and to assure that this will not be destroyed by the hand of man or nature. Now he already used, I just want to point out because he actually throughout this chapter uses the word progress, human progress or the phrase human progress a lot. And he talks about how the Aryans are the ones who did it by going and colonizing places and subduing the savages and so on and so forth, as he phrases it, and making them progress to a higher level of civilization. And he argues for various reasons why the Aryans are the only ones who can do so. Aryan, by the way, is a more or less completely occult idea that Hitler probably picked up from a woman named Helena Blavatsky, who was a huge occultist that started in Russia with German... uh, parentage of some degree and then traveled around the U.S. to England, spent a lot of time in India, picked up a bunch of um, kind of Hindu um, yoga almost ideas and cooked up this whole huge thing of occultism called the secret doctrine. That's what the title of her book was and that this kind of caught fire among occult groups and rich people in certain circles in both the UK, but also in Germany, where it took two different forms. So, I mean, that's important to know as background. So that's kind of where he gets his weird Aryan race ideology, but let's pick back up from where he was so we don't get lost. It's pretty clear at this point, though, that he's progressive. Everything he says that may be said of that kind of work, which is the fundamental condition of providing food. Oh, wait, no. Yeah, I already read that part. Sorry. In the German language, he says, we have a word which admirably expresses this underlying spirit of all work. It is, bear with me, y'all, it is Flitzerfulung, which means the service of commonweal before the consideration of one's own interests. It actually kind of means performance of duty, I think, more literally. The fundamental spirit out of which this kind of activity is the contradistinction of egoism, and we call it idealism. By this we mean to signify the willingness of the individual to make sacrifices for the community and his fellow men. This is how he's saying progress is actually achieved, and he locates it in the Aryan race. That's the key thing to understand. It is of the utmost importance to insist again and again that idealism is not merely a superfluous manifestation of sentiment, but rather something that has been, is, and always will be a necessary precondition of human civilization. See, it's the root of progress. It is even out of this that the very idea of the word human arises. That's something Marx would have agreed with. To this kind of mentality, the Aryan owes his position in the world, and the world is indebted to the Aryan mind for having developed the concept of mankind. For it is out of this spirit alone that the creative force has come, which in a unique way combined robust muscular power with a first class intellect and thus created the monuments of human civilization. Again, his model of where progress comes from is not communist, totally. I mean, hammers and sickles require some muscles to work, and you are supposed to have intellect to understand the theory. Um, But where he's locating that in the Aryan race is not the same. He uh, as what the communists did, which locates it within awakened consciousness. Were it not for idealism, all the faculties of the intellect, even the most brilliant, would be nothing but intellect itself. A mere external phenomenon, that's pure Blavatsky, by the way, that is exactly how Blavatsky um, separates what she calls the Atlanteans from Atlantis, who are the intellectuals, from the Aryans, who are the intellectual spirituals, who are sort of the higher, well actually she calls them the fifth root race, more or less. Uh, But anyway, Uh, Were it not for idealism all the faculties of the intellect, even the most brilliant would be nothing but intellect itself, a mere external phenomenon without inner value and never a creative force. Since true idealism, however, is essentially the subordination of the interests and life of the individual to the interests and life of the community, Marx would say, to his species because he's a species being. And since the community on its part represents the prerequisite condition of every form of organization, this idealism accords in its innermost essence with the final purpose of nature. So he knows the final purpose of nature, and he knows how to get there. That's the Gnostic part. This feeling alone makes men voluntarily acknowledge that strength and power are entitled to take the lead and thus makes them a constituent particle in that order out of which the whole universe is shaped and formed. So the whole the particulars are part of the whole. That's the Hegelian hermetic Marxist actually. The, each individual is a part is a particle of a constituent particle out of the order, the society, out of which not only society and man, but the whole universe really is shaped and formed. That's the same as what Marx would say for the same reasons, but this is closer to the way Blavatsky phrased it. Without being conscious of it, the purest idealism is always associated with the most profound knowledge. So it, if you actually look into this chapter and read how Ache talks about the nature of progress and he explains the Aryan's role in the nature of progress, and then you hear this, it's very clear, A, that Hitler was a progressive, and B, that this Gnosticism laying underneath of it is, in fact, why he's a progressive, and that this overlaps with Marxist socialism so heavily that it's not even funny. It deviates from Marx a bit, and in significant ways, but it's based upon essentially the same ideas. Marx was not based on Blavatsky, by the way. Uh, She's the New Age occultist that came later. Marx was based off of Hegel, and Hegel was a German romanticist, and the kind of romantic movement was itself steeped in these similar mystery religions that Blavatsky stole from and created forgeries of, etc., but there is a key difference despite how close they are. Marx looked back at the unfolding of history, saw an unfolding story of progress through oppression, and said that was necessary and bad as it achieved progress. So we can understand this, seize the means of production in a collectivist sense, and make things better. The next step is a socialist state under the dictatorial control of people who think like I do. Hitler, on the other hand, looked back at the unfolding of history, saw an unfolding story of progress through oppression, and said that was necessary and good to achieve progress, so we can understand this and seize the means of production in a collectivist sense and make things better. The next step is a socialist state under the dictatorial control of people who think like I do. That's literally exactly the same idea with the exception of seeing the nature of oppression as bad in the case of Marx, as he defined oppression, and necessary and good in the case of Hitler, which defines in some sense, as I said, the left-hand and right-hand paths of progressivism. So that difference matters kind of a lot in some ways, but in terms of being the unique kind of arrogance that winds up murdering and starving people by the millions and sparking violent conflict all around itself, there's no difference at all. That destruction comes from the progressive impulse, not its particular manifestation. The motivation is the same in both cases, and so is the underlying view of the world. All that differs is the orientation, oppressor versus oppressed, in perspective. The totalitarianism, the catastrophe, they're all similar if not identical in service to both progressive paths. And again, if you don't want to call them left and right, that's fine. I'm just trying to put an earmark on kind of language people are familiar with. It's a distraction in my opinion. So the reason is the same in both cases, and that's the progressive impulse. Hitler phrased it this way, the purest idealism, we just heard that, the purest idealism is always associated with the most profound knowledge. We heard him say that it's understanding the intention of nature, that's Gnosticism. Marx believed the same thing. Marx believed suffering confers this knowledge, suffering in the systemic sense, and he located uh, the impulse in class. In fact, the suffering class has the access to the consciousness that can overthrow these things. Hitler believed superior superiority proves it and located the superiority in race and nation. As a matter of fact, what he thinks is the same thing is Marx that the, uh, the race and the nation in this case instead of the class by realizing how they came to be in such a good position can concentrate that whereas with Marx it's that by realizing themselves to have been put in a press position they can seize the means of production concentrate their power and transform the world into something different. In both cases the entire program operates on a false claim to have had a glimpse of the divine intellect in his plan for nature and humanity to understand what their completion is supposed to be which includes the process of becoming conscious of man's unique role in manifesting the divine plan and thus the drive to implement it on everyone else which of course is totalitarianism okay so that means becoming conscious of man's unique role for marx it's realizing the nature of oppression and using that to become time to come together in solidarity and overthrow the class structure. And for Hitler, it's saying, no, 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 the class structure is what makes it work. And we're going to lean right into that and get rid of the weaklings. That's literally the orientation. It's the exact same program. And it's, do you favor the underdog or do you favor the overdog? That's literally what it is. Marx located it in, in an economic class, by the way, not in a racial class or a national class. Hitler located it in race and class, but Aryan race, if you read Blavatsky, is not a particular race of people. Marx was a little, or sorry, Hitler was a little more crude with it, and Blavatsky dips in and out of that and actually says sort of the same things, but it's actually supposed to be on a spiritual level. That's where you dis- determine who the, the Aryans are. And anyway, or in any case, in both cases, what we have is a claim that's putting a relevant group ahead of everyone in terms of their consciousness and thus their right to rule. And that, de- that determines the path forward. This, again, will always make it totalitarian. It will always make it mass democidal in the end. So democide is murder by the government. They will always do mass democide, mass murder, uh, probably by the hundreds of thousands or millions. And this isn't just putting the relevant group ahead of everyone else. Like I said earlier, Um, it's not quite right. It's members of the group. Members of the group are subjected to this too. So as Hitler made clear, as communists writing on class consciousness made clear, as solidarity and their all of their kind of 20th century writing makes clear, um, the the in group, the class, the race, etc., the Aryans, whoever, must also subordinate themselves to the relevant group, which will always concentrate itself, therefore, and will express itself through a state apparatus led by a misenlightened party that thinks it's seen the mind of God in the direction of history and nature and mankind. So here's a Marxist contemporary. So I pointed out, you know, that if we read somebody from the early 20th century as a Marxist, it would sound very similar to Hitler. Here's an early 20th century Marxist, a contemporary of Hitler's, wrote this in the exact same years that Hitler was composing Mein Kampf. And you can get a feel for this. I'm just going to read a little bit Quote, it was left to Marx to make the concrete discovery of truth as the subject and hence to establish the unity of theory and practice. This he achieved by focusing the known totality upon the reality of the historical process and by confining it to this. By this, that's what Hitler was doing. He just located it differently, by the way, focused it very differently. By this means he determined that both, he determined both the knowable totality and the totality to be known. Well, there's your Gnosticism. And, by thinking that you get to claim the control of the means of production in direction of that, you're becoming a totalitarian. You're a Gnostic becoming a totalitarian, seeking to make the progress of history unfold according to what you think is what God intended it to be. The scientific superiority of the standpoint of class, you could easily have race instead, Aryan race, the scientific superiority of the standpoint of class as against that of the individual has become clear from the foregoing. Now we see the reason for the superiority. Only the class can actively penetrate the reality of society and transform it in its entirety. But for Hitler, who were, what made an Aryan an Aryan? It was somebody who acted in terms of the class, in terms of the the rest of the society around him, the group. He wanted no accolades. He took nothing from it. He was going to subordinate himself to the group. And so, why are they superior? Only the class can actively penetrate the reality of society and transform it in its entirety. That's exactly what Hitler said the Aryans and the Aryans alone can do. Now, this is George Lukács writing in History and Class Consciousness. He's an outright Marxist, famous Marxist, From and this was written in 1923. For comparison, Volume 1 of Mein Kampf was published in 1925. So roughly the same time. So you can see that the writing styles are clearly from the same time period and you get the same feeling from both texts because they have the same underlying engine. So what ties together Nazism and Communism is the progressive engine that's driving both of them. History is analyzed in the same way. The source of progress is identified as the same thing. Certain group of people doing things in subordination to the group What to do to advance progress has the same general program and structure. Those people are supposed to become aware of what works and take full control of it in a dictatorial fashion. But what differs is the analysis on who has the right to rule and why. Is it the winners or the losers up to to now? And what also differs is whether the structure of how progress has been achieved so far is deemed good or bad. Okay? That's the only difference. Everything else is the same, which is why both of them are the only things in history that have murdered people by the millions in order to try to force everybody to achieve their goals. So how different this makes them, I guess, is a little bit in the eye of the beholder. I assert that they are different in a fundamental way. I've clarified that. Um, certainly Marxists don't believe in world domination through imperialism, at least not in the end. They think that's what they're fighting after, and that's why they're the unique anti-fascists. The fascists do believe in doing that, world domination through imperialism, because they think that the strong have the right to rule, and in fact, everything will be better if the strong are able to take over and rule everything. Now, Marxists do, they don't see it as the end. They see it as the means to that end, by establishing global socialism under the party apparatus, under a dictatorship of the proletariat that rules with an iron fist to force it to happen. The only thing is, is the Marxists think that if they force their progressive vision on society, eventually you won't need a state. You don't have to rule over the people any longer after you hit, according to Lenin, the absolute maximum point of tyranny. At that point, the state will, in Marx's words and also Lenin's, Wither away and be unnecessary. So it's only kind of a fantasy that Marxism is different than um, Nazism on this point. But the question of who gets to rule is actually sort of it. Well, it seems to be different. It's underdog versus overdog. Now, what? That's not actually that much different either, because for Hitler. The Germans were actually the overdogs who had been thrust unjustly into the underdog position. they were they were the naturally superior superior Aryans who'd been taken advantage of in World War One and in the years in between and thrust down into the dump and uh, they were going to rise back up to their glory that they deserve. And, and Marxists don't have that very that different look of things. There are these conscious people who understand how society really works, and they have the true insight of the nature of the world, and they're being oppressed unjustly by the division of labor and the oppressive forces of capitalism, and they're going to rise up and uh, establish their, their rule, which will bring glory and freedom to everybody. There are some differences, but they're super similar. And the reason is that they're both progressive. In fact, they're both rooted in Gnostic progressivism, which is a form of collectivist religion. And they both actually use the tools of hermetic transformation, which are situated uniquely in the state apparatus. They both take this from Hegel, who said that the state is the divine idea as exists on earth and the apparatus that's meant to move history along to its intended end. It has to be made clear again, Hitler, there's a huge controversy as to whether Hitler was pro-Hegel or anti-Hegel. He certainly curses him out at some points, but he also invokes the the idealism that Hegel was talking about, though in a different way. So he's kind of like modified the same program, but that's because Hitler was more of a new age occultist than a romantic hermetic. And so he kind of rejected Hegel, but he certainly took the same some of the same tools, like hermetic transformation and power being located in the state, as though it's a divi- it's the expression of the divine will put onto earth in order to achieve the intended goal of history, which is of course the progressive impulse. Just to hear from Lukács again to get this idea uh, is there in communism as well. He said the proletariat can constitute itself as a class only in and through revolution. In this process, which can neither provoke nor escape, so through conquest, military power. In this process, which it can neither provoke nor escape, Hitler would have disagreed on the provoke, he in fact provoked a lot of it, the party is assigned the sublime role of bearer of the class consciousness of the proletariat and the consciousness of its historical vocation. So the party in both cases, the Nazi party and the communist party, are assigned the sublime role of the bearer of the consciousness of the completion of history and the conscience of its historical vocation and of course a historical vocation is to awaken the relevant people to do a revolution to seize power under a dictatorship of those relevant conscious Gnostic people and use that power to direct all of man and society to the intended end of history which they alone know and understand and comprehend the processes of and it will all be done progressively. So, think on these things.